Fixate on Code, episode 17. All right, Larry Boerter here, and you are listening to Fixate on Code, the weekly bite-sized podcast where I talk to the best devs about their favorite strategies for writing great code. Now, let's chat with today's featured guest, Jake Archibald. Jake, thanks for joining me today. No problem. How's it going? (laughs) Awesome on the side. Thank you. Jake is a developer advocate for Google Chrome, where he speaks regularly about service worker, application performance, and offline-first apps. Before joining the team at Google, Jake worked at Lanyard honing his performance skills, and before that, worked at the BBC creating an inclusive experience for users with disabilities. Jake, can you fill in some of the gaps in that intro and tell me a little bit about what you get up to when you are not writing code? Oh, okay. The gaps of that, I mean, uh, there aren't many. <laughs> so I, I went, yeah, I ended up at the BBC pretty much straight after university. I guess I spent most of my time doing like a, a JavaScript library there, which kind of involved UI components, where a lot of the accessibility stuff came in. But yeah, I, I kind of I left the BBC, went to an agency. I actually really enjoyed agency work. Um, I think I was lucky. I think I was working for a good agency. And then the, the lanyard thing, um, yeah, a lot of web performance stuff, but also... That is where, because uh, we wanted Lanyard to work offline because of conference Wi-Fi being bad, but also people like roaming because uh, they're in another country. And that's really where the whole sort of journey of doing stuff offline first, that's, that's where all of that began. That's where I found out that AppCache was not <laughs> suitable for what we were trying to do. Um, yeah, and then I ended up at Google trying to fix it. And hopefully we got somewhere with it. How long ago were you at Lanyard trying to work on offline stuff? I've been at Google for five years now, which kind of makes me feel really old. <laughs> um, and then it was it was immediately before that that I was that I was at Lanyard, uh, and I was there for, for a year. So that's 2012, and you're trying to work with offline apps back then, and and it's only recently become a sort of mainstream thing. But you must have been fighting an, a massive uphill uphill battle back then. Yeah, and that's that's where the the whole the, I wrote this article called "App Cash is a Douchebag," <laughs> which was kind of it was sort of, it was partially a rant of like you know why is this API like, uh, how did this API end up getting into browsers like this there was I guess they just didn't think beyond one very narrow use case, um, but the article was also about kind of how you can sort of try and work around most of it a little bit kind of uh you know to actually make something that sort of that that worked so yeah it was uh and that was sort of my introduction to reading web specs as well because uh, there were articles about app cache at the time but most of the articles were like oh yeah you just like you put stuff in this manifest and as if by magic everything now works offline <laughs> and, but it's kind of like well but but when is this actually updating like what why is it doing this and uh, i it's doing lots of things that aren't covered in any of these articles so the the only source i really had was the spec and and yeah and it was tough <laughs> you know i i guess i've i've been working with web standards enough now that i can kind of i sort of know how they're written i know how to click around them um but yeah trying to chew through the what was the html spec but the, the app cache specific parts of that to try and you know figure out when when all of these things actually happen and which requests will be handled by app cache and which ones won't be yeah, that was a kind of real learning curve that I hit face on, really. <laughs> so you've you've worked a ton with with Service Worker. You you speak a lot about Service Worker. 
Um, and, and I think, I think a lot of people associate your name with service work as well. What mm. are you, what are you most passionate about as a developer? Oh, um, well the, the web platform in general, right? It, it's <laughs> thinking of like the promise of, uh, things like Java as being this kind of write once run everywhere thing. And the idea that we'd be building apps with Java and, and, and that side of it never really happened in a big way. And it feels like the web managed it, you know, it's that, that true experience of, yeah, you can write it once mm. and it's running on OS X, running on Windows, it's running on Android and, and you know, mm. lots of obscure uh, operating systems as well uh, on phones, on tablets. And uh, that's what I really love about the, the web platform uh, and, you know, being able to just send someone a URL from one device to another and they can experience the app without any kind of install step and, you know, without too many compatibility worries. Mm. Uh, yeah, that sort of o- openness is what I love. And then us being able to extend that now with, with progressive web apps, which are super exciting and, and I think really going to give, uh, give native apps a, a massive run for their money, which is, which is super exciting because, um, yeah, I suppose, we, you, again, we're, we're riding once and, and running everywhere. I was, I was going to say, with that, like, I find it really exciting going to uh, conferences or uh, I, was, I was in India uh, last week and just hearing people talking about progressive web apps, especially building them instead of native apps. And part of me sort of steps back and thinks that the term PWA, progressive web app, me from 10 years ago would have probably hated that. <laughs> um, because I hated Ajax. Because mm. um, it, it annoyed me because it's like, hey, well, Ajax, what, what does it mean? You know, it's like asynchronous JavaScript and XML. Like, but everyone's using this phrase to mean things that, that aren't XML or, or things like mm. that. And I, I was like, this, this it's making me angry because it's just, a, this is a marketing phrase. It's really <laughs> annoying. But then I look back now and, and the term Ajax, it was something that the people who had funding, like the managers or the, the people creating projects were saying, hey, can, can you make this a, uh, uh, you know, is it going to be Ajax or is it going to be Web 2.0? And it, it kind of became this, this marketing term for, is it going to be good? Is it going to be good and modern? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that is, that is what PWA is. Um, and I've made my peace with that. But it also makes me happy that we do have things like Lighthouse as, as a way to kind of get a, a tangible feel for what PWA is and, and what the requirements are. But yeah, it just means mm. building, a, building a modern website that you know, works offline and runs everywhere. How, how is the response in India? Because as an emerging market, Data is a massive concern to them. It's the same here in Africa. And I, and I imagine there's, there's many other countries around the world where data and speed are a huge factor that, that people in, in first world countries in the US and the UK and Europe, they, they often don't think about. They don't know it's a problem. How, how is the response in India to this alternative to building native applications? Yeah, so I, I was in Bangalore a couple of years ago uh, and we talked to a lot of dev teams out there. And most of them were running... Uh, they were building for mobile, and they were using uh, Angular One, mm. and it uh, it kind of blew my mind because it's like you know Angular. What uh, I have a reputation for being anti-framework, <laughs> and a, a lot of that is sort of I'm softening a lot because frameworks are getting better. Mm. Um, but Angular One was terrible. It is not suitable for mobile at all. Mm. Um, you know, even on a high-end phone, it was slow. So I was sort of shocked to see these teams, like because Angular was massive as well. It's a massive and slow. 
And it's just like, this is the least suitable thing to be running in India, you know? Yeah. Um, so going back now and, and hearing, oh yeah, we're using Preact because it's small uh, and we're doing mm. server rendering because it's fast and yeah. you know, good for SEO or whatever. So just seeing that difference in a couple of years has it, it, been amazing. Um, at the conference I ran this, uh, we, we did this thing called a site clinic, which was just um, me and a few other DevRels sort of standing at a table. People would bring their their URLs and we would do like a little performance audit uh, and see where things were. And, you know, the results were, um, well, as mixed as they would be anywhere, you, we would catch the odd case of asynchronous XHR happening or maybe like, a, you know, scripts which were blocking rendering. But then I saw uh, you know, some folks bringing sites that were, that I had very little to say about other than well done. <laughs> and um, I, I spoke to one guy in particular and he was saying, oh yeah, I, I build sites for the US, but I build them as if I were building them for my village in India. Wow. And, it, and that the result is I build these sites that work really, really fast in, yeah. in the US. And that was great to hear. And I was kind of like, oh, I want to bring some UK and US dev teams yeah, to Bangalore to speak <laughs> to the teams there and say, like, learn from them, like the the the, the tactics they're using to to make stuff run really fast. Because yeah, they've they've really got a handle on it. I suppose what you need there is the the opposite mentality from the UK and the US that I'm building a site for clients in the US or an application, but I'm building it as if my clients or or, or end users are are sitting in India. Exactly, and the the term, the kind of phrasing we use for promoting offline first. Uh, you know, we'll tend to use things like, um, you know, it's going to work when someone is traveling and they're roaming, uh, cause you get, you know, either no or slow data then, or you get, um, it, you know, you're, you're on a plane where you have no data or you're on a train where you're going in and out of bad data. But these are very sort of privileged use cases, you know, not, not everyone, very <laughs> yeah. few people are traveling the world, but you know, not everyone's sort of commuting on a train every day as well. Yeah. But it's the, it's the kind of use cases that we can give that are more applicable to the, the people who have the money mm. as well. Um, cause it, you know, if you're sort of saying, you know, th- think about people in more rural areas that don't have great internet, an executive sitting in an office in London might not find that relatable. <laughs> so, yeah. so we find we have more success with, oh, imagine imagine if this was more usable during your you know commute through Sussex, you know? <laughs> something something I suppose tangible and relatable to to people who I suppose it it's, it comes down to being privileged and and uh, disconnected, I suppose, in a way. Now Jake, you've been you've worked at BBC, you've worked at Lanyard, and now you're a now you're a developer advocate at at Google Chrome. Can you can you tell me what are the steps that got you to where you are today? Uh, luck, 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 and being being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I, I saw this I saw this tweet um, a few weeks ago where it just said, um, "Entrepreneurs giving advice." Here are the numbers I used to win the lottery, um, <laughs> and that really resonated with me. Um, but you know, for what it's worth, here are the numbers that I picked. Um, I, so I, I went to university in. Uh, Middlesbrough, which is not like not one of the top universities by by any stretch, um, but I did a course in multimedia there, which was mm-hmm. predominantly Flash. There was a bit of web stuff there, but I'm I was a kind of you know, I trained as a Flash developer, I guess, and it was something I was kind of dabbling in before uh, I went to university as well. But the the key part of that course for me was like there was this year in industry, and you organized it mostly yourself. Uh, you know, found somewhere to go 
for, for the third year because um, it's a four-year course. And I, I wound up at Reuters um, in London. And that really was kind of, that taught me how to work for a company um, and in an office uh, and also communicate to less technical people because I was working in HR uh, doing their intranet. Mm. Uh, also their careers website externally, but it was mostly intranet stuff. Um, but once I'd gone back to university, finished that course, um, Reuters offered me a job there. So that kind of got me down to London, you know, cause I, I wouldn't have chanced it just moving <laughs> if I didn't have a job there. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I was keen on doing stuff with other developers cause I was kind of, uh, at, at Reuters, uh, cause I was in this HR team, we had this, this internal job board that they wanted. Uh, and, and so they told me what they wanted and I, I designed it and, uh, put it together. And the, the, the stack that they had there was really old, but I managed to sort of write this weird thing in Perl that would kind of scraped the data from the main site and a couple of other sites and, uh, put it in a database and I optimized that and put it together. I was really pleased with it and I showed them it and it was like, and they were like, oh yeah, this is, this is great. Thanks, Jake. And then it was like two, two days later, they went, ah, oh, Jake, we've, we've got these new mice and we don't know how to plug them in. Could you do that? And I, I did that. And they were like, oh, that was great. Thanks, Jake. And I was like, oh, wait, wait, that's the same reward I got for this crazy pearl thing. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this is not the right place for me. So, and that, that's, that's when I went to the BBC. Um, yeah. And so they did four years there, learned a lot about accessibility, um, they did this JavaScript library uh, that was used internally there for a, um, for a long time. I think some sites some sites still use it. Um, but yeah, that that got me talking to other developers, which I didn't really have at Reuters. Um, that got me started uh, speaking at uh, you know small meetups and uh, things like that. That's when I did my first conference talk. That uh, one of the developers there, her partner ran uh, the App Media conference, which was a a conference many years ago. Um, and because I, I knew him through her, I, you know, he invited me at this conference. I spoke at that and that was kind of my big break. Cause it was, I, um, I was speaking about this, the JavaScript library we did at the BBC and, and kind of the challenges of writing JavaScript at the BBC. Cause we had to support more browsers than other people did mm-hmm. uh, and had stronger accessibility guidelines as well. Uh, but that was at, at the same conference, Brendan Ike was speaking, Yehuda Katz was speaking. Uh, Dion Alma was speaking. This is kind of like people who I really looked up to at the time when I was kind of giving my first conference talk at the same stage. And yeah, I, was, I think it was the following year, uh, Remy Sharp got me to speak at uh, Full Frontal, his conference in Brighton. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, you know, the, the conference speaking thing sort of built up from there. But then at the BBC, some management structures changed. There was a reorg. Uh, my project got canned, which, uh, I mean, it was bad at the time but it was really uh, looking after that project was not the only thing keeping me at the bbc i'd been there for four years mm-hmm. and so sort of being young at the time it kind of felt like a a long time to be in one place uh so i, I went to uh, an agency called the team with uh phil hawksworth who's now at netlify but um i really enjoyed the bbc when we were making websites for tv shows because there was this kind of quick turnaround mm-hmm. so sort of tight deadlines but variety and I kind of found that again at this agency, uh, sort of doing lots of different stuff, testing different ways of building things. Cause I, I know if I, if I really, if I do the wrong thing, then I know this project's over in one month and I can start the new one and, and you know, look, make a different set of mistakes on, on the new one. <laughs> um, but, uh, but 
yeah, um, Simon and Natalie, who were sort of starting up Lanyard, they uh, and I'd met them at conferences uh, and at meetups. Yeah, they invited me to do to join Lanyard, and yeah, like, like I said before, this is where we we wanted to do this offline thing, mm. and so that's kind of where I yeah, learned all about web standards. That's uh, how I learned that the the offline situation we had wasn't great. Um, but I had to say, I was kind of like, I, you know, startup life wasn't really for me uh, and working on just one project for a long time. I wasn't so comfortable with that. Uh, so I, I, I looked to move uh, to a different agency where Phil, who I, who I worked with, uh, who was my boss at the agency before, he'd moved on. And I, I was kind of saying to him, hey, hire me. Let's work together <laughs> again. That worked out great. But at the same time, I was contacted by uh, Paul Kinlan at Google saying that, oh, you know, they were just making this new thing called a Chromebook and they were wanting developer feedback on it. So, you know, I did that um, and I came back to the Google office to give them the Chromebook back along with all the feedback that I'd gathered. And um, some of the US folks were over in the office at the time for some reason. So I was like, you know, Paul Irish, Eric Bidelman were there. So I went out for dinner with them. I was saying, yeah, I'm going to move on, I think. I've got, you know, it's trying to set up this thing with this agency. And they were like, um, do you want to like, interview with us? Do you fancy giving that a go? Wow. And, and I'd heard about these terrifying Google interviews, you oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I was kind of like, well, yeah, okay, why not? I've got nothing to lose. Uh, if we can set it up quickly, because I've got this offer sort of building with this other place. Yeah. And, and I really did go into it thinking, uh, I'm probably not going to get this, but it's no big deal because I'm kind of building up this this idea with this agency that I would be pretty happy with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I only managed to sneak in. <laughs> I managed to get past the interview at Google, which still kind of amazes me. <laughs> I don't I don't have a computer science background. Like I say, it's sort of multimedia and flash. Mm. Uh, yeah. And then once I got in, they were like, hey, you know that offline thing you've been complaining about so much? <laughs> in why, why not go and fix it? I was like, no, no, I'm just the problems guy. I'm not the solutions guy. <laughs> I can point them out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that's, wow. That's, I guess that's my life history, really. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a crazy story. Now, I mean, you've, you've spent your time at a, at a range of different companies. I'm sure you've seen your fair amount of, of ups and downs. What is the worst experience you've ever had on a project? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I would say in general, I've been quite lucky. I haven't had too many bad experiences. Um, I gave a really bad talk once at Event Apart. Which was a bit miserable because it because you know event apart that's uh, Jeffrey Seldman Eric Meyer like sort of big names. It's uh, a big thing, right? And I'd I'd written this um, this talk where it, that was an interactive quiz. Now um, as I did the big web quiz thing at IO uh, earlier this year, but many years before that, I I did this sort of prototype of that, uh, which is a similar thing. People voting on their phones. Um, and it, the questions were all about like which browsers are going to make a request in this situation. And I'd, I'd given this talk at a couple of meetups and it, it felt great because, you know, people were groaning at the answers and they were competing with each other. <laughs> it, it, it was a really nice talk to give. And I, I'd given it a few times and I hadn't gotten bored of it. Anyway, I went to Event Apart thinking like, oh, well, this is, this is going to go great. Um, and the network failed. Like people couldn't connect to the, to, to the server to do the interactive conference Wi-Fi. Right, exactly. <laughs> so with the interactive part gone, 
like I had to sort of do a show of hands instead of the interactive thing. And people are not up for that. Like, mm. like four questions in, people are like, nah, nah, mate, my arm's tired. I'm just not playing anymore. And it's just that, that whole, that horrible thing of I have lost this audience like 10 minutes in and it's a 50 minute know. talk. Um, 50. Yeah. Yeah. They, they run the talks long at event apart, or at least they did back then. They haven't invited me back since then. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but in terms of like, actual projects uh, you know aside from speaking this this javascript library we ran at the bbc the way we deployed it and the way a lot of stuff at the bbc was deployed was using ftp like not not secure ftp just ftp drag and drop wow and uh, and you know shared password and i had the keys to the castle <laughs> along with god only knows how many people um, how much how much of the application was exposed through that one ftp uh, account well it it was a javascript library so it was the whole thing you know we were just dragging and dropping the thing into a, a root folder on the, wow. the bbc web server uh, <laughs> and uh, and the way we do cuz we did a lot of testing cuz we knew what the stakes were, yeah. but um, we would always, you know, do the testing. But then we do all, like, you know, all the minification, do some testing there, and then we we do what we called a, a silent release. As and you know, every time we said silent release, I would giggle because I have the humor <laughs> of a twelve year old. But uh, <laughs> but then, so we we did this. Everything seemed great. We you know checked a lot of BBC sites. Everything was fine, not a problem. And it turns out what ha- the way this deployment system happened under the hood. And I didn't know this at the time, but you you FTP'd. And it went to this sort of central place. But the BBC was actually you know, built of a load of front-end servers that would synchronize with each other. And apparently what had happened is the deploy hadn't quite gone right. It had only gone to one server that was not part of the cluster. So our deploy hadn't really happened. And what happened is about two weeks later, the cluster was fixed or reset or something. And this mm-hmm. server that we'd actually deployed to came back into the cluster and went, hey, I've got this newer thing that none of <laughs> you have. How about we uh, all synchronize up on that a little bit? And it turns out there was like a minification bug that had crept in. And oh, no. it was like ni- uh, half past eight at night on a weekday, we broke iPlayer, um, the, the, the video streaming thing that was just gaining huge popularity at the BBC. Oh, jeez. So, you know, that was a kind of, you know, emergency phone calls happening. Uh, you know, having to get back into the office to sort of figure out how to fix this, like what was happening. Uh, and we lost a lot of trust with the head of iPlayer at the time. Even though, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we were saying it's, this is not our fault. You know, there was, we really felt like BBC's deployment system screwed us over. But um, yeah, anyway, it, it was it was a kind of, to, to bring down something as, as big as iPlayer for a few hours, and it was only a few hours, but um, at a prime time, yeah, it was it was something we definitely had to recover from. That's that's quite a quite a nightmare to be in the middle of. Mm. Now, in terms in terms of getting quality work done on a daily basis, Jake, which method or tool are you using that you'd hate to be without? Electricity. I don't know. Yeah. The internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I use Chrome a lot. That's really. <laughs> yeah. <sir. laughs> um, oh, I don't know. Like, I, I don't feel like particularly religious about tooling or stuck to any one thing. Mm-hmm. I, I like Visual Studio Code. Isn't but it, I mean it's an editor. It's just an editor. Um, mm. If it disappeared tomorrow, I'd go to another editor. Mm. My life wouldn't be in ruins. I've heard a lot of really good news. I mean, um, what's his name? Sean Sean Larkin is mm. uh, is a big advocate of it. Um, well, he works at Microsoft now, so he has to stay there. <laughs> and Chris Hailman as well, who's also working at Microsoft. Mm. Um, but I've I've seen a lot of guys. I know um, Adi Osmani. I think uh, was recently speaking about. Or am I wrong? Um, but I've seen a lot of guys really really taking on um, 
like switching from a lot of people switching from Atom to VS Code, um, and it seems to be quite a step, uh, quite a step up. I mean, I've I've given it a brief bash myself. I'm a bit stuck in my in my Vim ways, and I I can't get all of my Vim sort of uh, niceties in into VS Code. I think mm. um, I think my brain my brain sparks an electric spark every time I touch my mouse. <laughs> well, I, I would say if you're using Vim, then I you know you're already kind of more advanced than things like Atom and VS Code can offer you, right? I'm, but I'm not a Vim user, so I, I kind of like the stuff that VS Code has, especially the auto-completion, especially if you're mm. using things like TypeScript. But like I say, if it disappeared tomorrow, I would, you know, go back to Sublime or something else. You know, it's, it's not, a, not a big deal. Um, yeah. I guess the, the thing that if it did disappear tomorrow that I would be lost without is GitHub. Because mm. all, all of the standards work I do, a lot of my day is spent on GitHub issues because we, we do that now instead of mailing lists, which is much better. Mm-hmm. Um, if Chrome DevTools disappeared, I'd be a bit lost. But I don't know. Again, uh, Firefox DevTools are pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It's just trying to think of things that if, if it disappeared, what would, what would I be totally lost without? I guess GitHub mm. is probably it because, you know, huge amounts of conversation and organization would have to move somewhere else. And I'm, I'm not really sure what the alternatives are right now. Mm. And it's interesting how it's, how it, what originally started as a software collaboration platform is now much more than that. I mean, it's used for, it's used for communication, it's used for project management and, and all these things that I imagine the people at GitHub, they, they didn't even imagine would be, would be uh, use cases for it. And, and without even massive, massive changes on their side, they, they still continue to develop GitHub, um, focused on software developers. But uh, as an organization, you can still, you can still benefit massively from it. Now, Jake, in your daily work, where do you still get frustrated? Where do you feel there's room for things to be done in a more effective way? I would guess it feels right now that there's a, a real disconnect between developers and standards authors. Like that it it can feel like two camps where I don't know, is this this perception that developers think standard folks standards folks are these like academics who have no idea how the real world works, uh, you know, and that's why they make all of these stupid decisions. And I think developers also feel that standards folks see them as kind of children who are excited about whatever the latest fad is, and like mm. you know, just you know, put jQuery in the platform, put React in the platform, just just <laughs> just do it, do it by magic. And I've I've been on both sides of that, and I continue to be on both sides of that. And you know, as a web developer, but also as a working on a working group on a on various web standards. And I think back to when I wrote App Cache is a douchebag, that kind of the big piece on why app cache is rubbish and I, I remember at the time i didn't really think of the humans who mm. implemented that and who specified it because i kind of felt really detached from it like in, in this i thought of them in the same way i thought of politicians you know like i know <laughs> i know who the politicians are but i don't really think of them as human they're just yeah <laughs> they're just these these people who don't who are out of touch and they're deciding things that will affect my life behind closed doors and i don't know really how any of it works um being part of a working group now, I kind of see the amount of research that goes into this stuff and, and the amount of respect these folks have for developers uh, and the number of them who are also developers. But I have also been involved in working groups that I that do feel like you know a bunch of academics wasting time. <laughs> um, so this is the part where I don't really have any answers, but I, I would like to see the divide between standards and developers sort of broken down. I think the WG has done an excellent job here in, in opening things out, putting things on GitHub. Um, not requiring people to pay membership in order to be involved, mm-hmm. uh, switching to GitHub rather than mailing lists, because uh, I just ignore the mailing list now. I, I don't find them productive. Uh, mm-hmm. I find it much easier 
to interact with and it's it seems to be where we get more interaction from developers as well uh the w3 has the ycg is a kind of similar effort to get developers involved yeah i th- i think that's uh, that's been a big step forward i hear some standards folks sort of saying to web developers hey you should get involved more mm. um I, I don't know. I think it's so rare for people to have enough spare time to, to get involved in a meaningful way. I only got involved really when I was being paid to um, or, or my job was giving me enough free time or enough time to, to take part in it. So I, I really empathize with developers who've kind of went to web standards and said, hey, why don't we do this? And the response has been, well, how does that work? Mm. I would say most developers are going to hit a brick wall at that point because reading specs is hard. There's not really a mm. lot of documentation to for how specs work, which I, I think you're know, working on these things for a couple of years now. I'm only starting to get a handle of the, you know, how, how the language we need to use to define, you know, when we create a JavaScript object, which, uh, thread is that created on? Like, which event loop does that go into? Which JavaScript realm does that appear in? All of this sort of stuff, which I just hadn't ever considered when I was not doing standards work. Uh, so yeah, no, no real answers there, but I, I would, I would love to see that go away by magic. Uh, well, being part of these working groups, you, you're, you're working with new technologies and, and discussing a lot of them. Are there any new libraries or frameworks or, or even just uh, personal projects, I suppose, um, that you're really excited about at the moment? So, uh, so I was at TPAC um, last month, which is the big W3C meetup um, where you get a lot of the browser vendors there um, and also a lot of representatives from uh, Facebook and teams like that. Ryosuke from who works on Safari, he presented this idea called template instantiation. Uh, and I'm really excited about that. It's, it's this idea that you have a, a template tag, um, which we already have today, uh, but a special way to uh, use mustache like templating inside that template tag. Oh, wow. And you can like, you know, so then you would say with this template, actually create me DOM nodes from this. Mm. Um, and you pass in like an object to to fill in the blanks, to fill in like the, the mustache like blanks. But then you would also have like a set state method to update all of those at once. Um, <laughs> and I really like this idea because it's it's taking the sort of stuff we see in, in React mm. uh, and we see in hyper HTML and lit HTML, a lot of libraries. And it sort of says like, you know, okay, so let's come up with a, a higher level, but also still low level enough way to kind of enable a lot of these uh, technologies to to be faster. You know, how, how can we bring this into the platform? And I'm kind of excited about that because it VDOM is really interesting, but I, I'm pretty confident it's an, a means to an end. Mm-hmm. I think... Yeah, the VDOM thing is just a way of sort of specifying all of this state. And, uh, but the the diffing step that has to happen in order to update the DOM kind of shows that something isn't quite right. It's having to work around mm-hmm. what's there. Whereas I think this template instantiation thing, which is taking a lot of cues from HyperHTML, LitHTML, uh, of how you can do those updates without the overhead of diffing, I'm really excited about that. That's, yeah, I'm keen to see that proposal move forward. And it's it's great to see Mozilla and Google sort of go, yes, we are interested in helping with this proposal and seeing what we can build out of it and, and seeing how we can fix like the problems with it. It's, it's interesting how these frameworks can sort of enlighten us on um, on problems that we that we took for granted before that we didn't really see were problems. And now React comes out. Well, I suppose React isn't responsible for VDOM. I suppose they, they're responsible for um, for how, how many people know about it now. But it's interesting mm-hmm. how that's now an identified issue that can be solved with a native API, which is, wow, that's that's super exciting. Right. Now, Jake, with, with all of these new languages and specs and libraries that are coming out, how do you decide on what to learn and when do you make time to learn? Uh, so I am usually late to the party when it comes to libraries. 
libraries and frameworks. I, I, I keep up to date with like web standards and browser features. So I guess I, I pick my battles. So I, in, in terms of web standards, um, through, uh, the like things like intent to ship, but also just uh, the issues on the HTML spec, uh, the discussions in the YCG. I keep quite up to date with uh, specs as they progress, ideas as they're proposed. But I, obviously working here, uh, I've also built up relationships with like engineers in storage and I meet up with them at uh, various events and also like standard things like TPAC. So uh, that's kind of how I keep up to date with standards. But yeah, with libraries, I kind of sit back and wait until they're popular. I'm like, I don't have time to experiment with all the frameworks. So I'll, I'll wait and go, ah, okay. So React and Vue and Angular are popular. I could, I could look <laughs> at those three. <laughs> and, uh, but yes, I'm, I'm definitely not at the bleeding edge of, of that stuff. I've got a finite amount of time. And I, I guess I, uh, yeah, in terms of keeping up, I spend that effort on standards rather than libraries. Yeah, and, and everything that comes out is, is so transient as well. I suppose Angular, Angular 1 was the, the flavor of what about? 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. and and Angular one went right out the door, and I suppose Angular, what do you call it now? Angular X, um, Angular XXXX. I don't know how many Angulars are coming out now. Oh my god! One one was called Angular JS, and one was just called Angular, and one of them's the new one, and one of them's the old one. I think maybe Angular is the new one, but. It's a 50-50 chance. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what the naming scheme is. All right, so um, Jake, which specific aspects about programming has dramatically changed the way that you think about and write code? I guess it's a little bit like we were talking before. When when people think of React, they think of like VDOM and the diffing. But yeah, I, I, think, I do think it's just a means to an end. Mm. Um, for me, the interesting part of React is the the state and props model um, and the life cycle of the components. Mm. And I'm really interested in the, the scheduling stuff that they're starting to introduce, like the sort of the async stuff, uh, but also the the single direction data binding. Uh, that was that was something using other frameworks that I really struggled with. Is like the two way data binding thing never sat well with me. Mm. Um, it just it seemed to really confuse the data flow. So seeing React come in with this very well defined uh, single direction for you know for binding but then you you know to communicate back up you're changing props i even when i'm not using react or or preact it's a model that i a pattern that i I find myself following Mm. and i i I have this little bet with myself that in a few years uh, maybe five years will react even be using vdom anymore because yeah i don't think it's the key part of react i think i think react will survive beyond uh, VDOM. Oh, that's cool. That's that's super exciting. And I mean, working with bidirectional states um, or bidirectional uh, events in Angular One was a nightmare. I imagine. I imagine a lot of that has been cleaned up in the newer Angulars. But um, yeah, just the it was a bit of a mind shift changing to React or that unidirectional data flow. But yeah, I agree completely. When when it comes to working with data and you know to update your component where you are. It's responsible for being updated somewhere higher up in the tree, and it goes in this beautiful circle. Yeah, it's a, I don't know how to describe it. It's a beautiful way of thinking. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> and with that, we've come to the end of our first segment. Jake, I'm about to throw some quick fire questions your way. Let's do this. All right, all right. What is the best advice about programming you have ever received? It wasn't about programming, but uh, at school, uh, my art teacher said, you get better at painting with every painting you paint. Mm. Uh, I didn't manage to get very good at painting, but <laughs> I appreciated the sentiment. And I do think that's true is like everything you build, every little library you write, everything you experiment with, you it's not wasted time. Even if the, you know, the project doesn't take off or if you just sort of, you know, hit command A, delete 
sorry, afterwards, that it was it would have still improved you as a coder. Mm. Which personal habits do you attribute to writing better code? I don't have any. I, it's the <laughs> it's entirely the other way around. Coding makes me a worse human. Uh, so I have to balance that out. I, it actually might just be web standards. Um, my partner will call me out and say, have you been working on web standards recently? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, why? Like, because you're being really pedantic. She uses some swearing when she says that. And, and, and I, but she's right that I, because you're working in an environment where, you know, all ambiguity must be destroyed, you know? Uh, and I, I, I find myself taking that into the real world too much. And it's something that I'm making a real conscious effort to try and avoid. And I think in general, it's, it's a, if you get trapped in code too much, you can end up forgetting about the humans <laughs> behind it as well. So that's something I've been trying to fix in my personal habits. Yeah. Back in, back in my university days, uh, I did a two-year course on, on computer science. I think we started with C++ and Java. I was terrible. I was, I was shocking. And I, after, after, I think it was the first semester in second year, I vowed never to do any practical stuff ever again because I, I don't know what I did. I spent three or four days on this tiny project to deliver it on a Friday. I came to my friends, oh my God, I, I did it. I managed to do it. Like it took me three or four days. And they were like, that took me an hour. Like, why did it take you so long? <laughs> and um, and yeah, and then I, I I just gave it up, and then I suppose I just somehow ended back up here again, uh, writing code, and mm. and I found that when when I started writing code and I started adopting the sort of the 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 ideology or the the approaches about programming, I realized, wow, I actually need to step back from my programming approaches from my personal life because. Um, yeah, they they really don't gel well, especially when you start getting dogmatic and and uh, and your pragmatism sort of goes out the window, which I, which I suppose is a phase that developers generally have to go through in order to get some real perspective. Yeah, and, and what you're speaking about before about like you know uh, hitting a wall with with coding or like finding yourself struggling more than other people. Uh, it, I mean that happens to yeah. everyone. I, I remember the first time I tried to use Flash uh, when I was at school, and I kind of clicked around the interface. I looked at some examples, and I decided, you know, I I really tried. I didn't get anywhere, and I decided this this is beyond <laughs> me. I will never be able yeah. to do this. And, and I, I went back to it six months later, and I don't know something had changed, and I was like, oh, hang on, this little bit actually makes sense. And I found that little loose thread that I could start pulling to to, to discover more. And I did the same with JavaScript. You know, I tried to learn it. I didn't get anywhere. I did the same with reading web standards. I, you know, hit a brick wall. I had to just go back to it later. I look at WebGL and think, you know, I will never be able to <laughs> to know that. It's beyond me. And, and but previous experience, if I you know if I give it a go and fail. I know I can just go back to it in six months and maybe, maybe things will have changed. So it's always worth giving it another go with a bit of a, a break, you know? Yeah, these little moving parts that seem, to, that seem to fall into place. Jake, if you could recommend one book on programming, what would it be and why? I, I don't know if I can read. I, I'm not a reader. I, I, don't, I don't read, I don't even really read uh, fiction, which makes me sound really uncultured. But it's, it's the truth, unfortunately. I, uh, uh, MDN. I, most of the stuff, my in for JavaScript was MDN. Mm. Well, I, I mean, actually my first in was, uh, it was at university and we didn't have the internet at university in, in the rooms, which just blows my mind to think of that these days. <laughs> I think we were the final year at Middlesbrough without internet anyway. But um, I did go to the library and picked up a big book about JavaScript and kind of read that. And maybe it helped. It didn't feel like it did at the time, but it wasn't until I was you know, online and I was able to just start chewing through MDN. Um, yeah, it was those guides uh, continue to be useful to me. So yeah, throughout my career, mm -hmm. MDN wins. 
Who in the front-end world is doing work that's really inspiring? So my kind of all-time award, <laughs> I think I would give to uh, Remy Sharp. Mm. Um, just through the amount of stuff he's done, the amount of time that I've been a, a fan of his. Like, so I remember early on in my career, I was reading his blogs about playing JavaScript, about jQuery, and then he started you know, Full Frontal FFConf in, in Brighton. Uh, I spoke at it in the first year and I've, I think I went to, yeah, I try and go to that conference whenever I can uh, and I've missed it the past two years, which I'm a little bit miserable about. But until then, I'd been to it every year. But that it continues to be a, a contributor to so many projects, like things like JSPIN. Mm. I just find myself using that so much. Uh, mm, I agree. And, but then things like Nodemon, like all of the libraries that he's done. Uh, the term polyfill, that's Remy Sharps, you know? It's, no way. Yeah, so... <laughs> I've, but a few other names I, I really look up to uh, Dominic Denicola and Anna Van Kestren in terms of web standards. Like Dominic uh, works at Google. He does a lot of TC39 stuff, a lot of uh, HTML stuff. The stream spec is his. For Anna Van Kestren, he does HTML spec stuff. It's kind of annoying that, that when people speak of the, the 10x developer, and I think that's sort of been debunked. I don't know when I see them too, that just the amount of work they get done, I am convinced they, they are hiring a team to work, to, to work under their names because I, every time I end up working on a, a new spec, I will find comments by one or both of them uh, <laughs> helping fix things and stuff. So the, the, amount that, the amount they know about the platform, I'm really envious of. Uh, but I'd also say um, in, in terms of Sarah Drasner, I, I really look up to her work uh, in terms of like developer outreach, uh, but also the creative coding stuff. Um, mm. the, there aren't many people who can do the the coding side to such a high level uh, or such an advanced level, but also the the creativity side. And mm. I hate people who can do that because I can't. <laughs> so yeah, I hate I hate Sarah Drasner for being good at that. Paul Lewis, same. I hate him as well. You can uh, people who can design and develop they disgust me. It's, it's, un, it's just plain unfair. It shouldn't be allowed. They should. It's just inhuman. Yeah, they should have to pick one <laughs> and just think, let the other skill rot. It's just just to give the aggressive yeah. as a chance. I think we need some good communism communism rule on on what we're allowed to to do and not to do in terms of development and design because it's yes. it's just unfair. It's just unfair. <laughs> Yeah, give the rest of us a chance. <laughs> All right, Jake, let's reverse things a little bit over here. Imagine you wake up and you have no recollection of ever writing code. With your knowledge of the tools, books, and courses available today, how would you go about learning to program from scratch? Uh, well, like, like I said before, MDN was really how I got into it and how I continue to get into it. So that would, that would be a huge part of it. I am a huge fan of Glitch right now, glitch.com. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, being able to experiment with server side stuff, uh, and just throw, be, you know, be able to share those demos instantly. That's, that's one of those things of like, you know, where have you been all my life? Because I mean, it's just been <laughs> like, just opened up so much to being able to just throw a quick demo online, uh, and raw Git as well, a similar one. But if you needed to, like, I, I want to test quickly, test what happens if you send like, if the server sends this header back or what if it you know breaks the connection halfway through and these are things you can't do with a static thing like jsbin like raw git so mm. that yeah I, I i spend so much time in glitch these days and i if i forgot everything i think that would be where i would go uh to start tinkering around without having to set up my own server and, and stuff but I, I guess this might be twisting your question a bit but i would go and read my own blog <laughs> and i don't i don't mean that as a piece of self promotion well i maybe i probably do but uh, <laughs> but, but I, I try and when I learn something, 
when I kind of have an epiphany or, you know, figure something out, I try and blog about it. So to some degree, it's like a backup of my brain. So if I did forget my everything, I think that's a point I would try and restore a lot of stuff. If, you know, if I've already brain dumped there, I can kind of, you know, reapply it back to my brain. And hopefully, because, you know, because I've written it, hopefully I would be able to understand it. I don't know if that yeah, would be true. That's awesome. But it would, it's certainly something I would go. <laughs> I suppose in this situation, it would, be a, it would be a severe case of amnesia as opposed to never having written good. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, Jake, let's wrap up with your top tip on how to work smart and the best way to connect with you. Uh, the best way to work smart, I think, don't forget the humans. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of quite a general statement. Like, don't forget, I guess by that I mean don't forget users um, and the, the things like the kind of connectivity they would ha- they might have, the different situations they might be in. But also don't forget that the person you're communicating with over the internet is a human as well. And it's uh, over Twitter, um, the home of reasonable debate. It's quite, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite easy to forget that it is like a, you know, a normal human being, uh, mm. at the other end who might not be as bad intentioned as you think. That's, that's becoming questionable nowadays. I don't know. <laughs> Although all the AI coming out, who knows what you're talking to. <laughs> so so I, I wrote this article, um, on, what, what was it on? It was like on, a, oh, async functions and the difference between await and return await. Anyway, it, yeah. it, it was someone posted it to Reddit and there was some comments there and there was a really interesting comment. Um, that dealt with some uh, potentially interesting issues around uh, call stacks uh, and things like that. But the person's username was Adolf Hitler, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how to like what 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 do I what do I do with this person? Like, do I engage because their their point is genuinely interesting? <laughs> I, don't, I don't I didn't think their point was was true or relevant, but I, I wanted. To, to kind of talk to him and, but do I want to talk to Adolf Hitler I don't know if I do <laughs> I, what's that is it Gordon's law where every conversational at some point eventually uh, descends into Nazism uh, a reference to Nazis yes yeah, well, you, you, you're just starting off on the, right, on the wrong foot there yeah, <laughs> yeah just going all in straight away as, um, I, I, so I did respond in the end and we had a bit of back and forth uh, <laughs> and uh, I it turns out he he turned out to be entirely unreasonable, which I should have <laughs> should have expected. Really, turns out Adolf Hitler quite an unreasonable person, even on Reddit. So, oh wow, okay, that's, that's what I learned. Well, at least at least they were consistent. <laughs> yes, exactly. True, true to name, I would say. All right, and the best way to connect with you, Jake? Um, I'm Jaffa the Cake on Twitter. Uh, I spend too much time on Twitter, but mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, my blog is jakearchwell.com and that has links to like Twitter. Also has my email address, uh, which is uh, cake at gmail.com or jakearchwell at google.com. Uh, I don't mind which anyone uses. Um, I think I'm Jake Archibald on GitHub. I don't know. There's all, all the links are on my blog. <laughs> awesome. To everyone out there, you have been listening to Jake Archibald and Larry Buerter. Head over to fixate.it where you'll find links and timestamps for everything we've been chatting about today. And Jake, thank you for sharing your journey with Fixate on Code. Keep pushing the limits and keep pushing great code. 